Welcome to 2050 Investors, the podcast that deciphers economic and market megatrends to meet tomorrow's challenges. I'm Kokua Bobla. I head up economics, cross-asset, and quant research at Société Générale. In each episode of 2050 Investors, I'll investigate a key megatrend that relates to the economy, the planet, markets, and you. Have you ever wondered where all the parts, components, and raw materials needed to build your iPhone or any smartphone came from? In other words, what would the DNA sequencing of our dear friend Siri look like? Stay away from me. Okay, don't worry, this is not an autopsy. Like many tech companies, Apple works with suppliers across 43 countries and 6 continents. This is the result of international trade and globalization, which really took off at the beginning of the 19th century. The outcome of a long process of global collaboration, coordination, logistical ingenuity, and trade agreements, and disagreements. It did have its share of ups and downs, waves of protectionism, followed by liberalism ideology. It survived two world wars and many pandemics. These trade relationships are today weaved into complex supply chains that resemble a massive spider web encircling the world. The history of international trade reminds me of Jules Verne's adventure novel, Around the World in 80 Days. Written in 1872, during the Victorian times, in the heydays of the British Empire. Traveling the known world in less than three months was in the realm of grand adventures and discovery at that time. Something we take for granted today. Clearly, globalization and international trade have contributed to a significant increase in global GDP and wealth creation, lifting billions of people out of poverty, improving living standards for many, increasing productivity and profitability for multinational corporations, thanks to liberalism winning over mercantilism or protectionism. It was powered by economic principles, such as comparative advantage and economies of large scale. We enjoy many benefits, vast choices of consumer goods and services at our fingertips, access to culture, information, food, music, electronics, and the ability to work with colleagues around the world thousands of miles away. But behind every human story and history, there is a dark, carbonated side. That's a deja vu. Clearly, not everyone has benefited from international trade. While the benefits are undeniable, the side effects and collateral damage are significant. Job losses, exploitation of cheap labor to modern slavery, trade wars, governance and regulatory arbitrage, inequality, pollution, nationalism, the cult of shareholder returns at the expense of other stakeholders, as discussed in the Green versus Greed episode. Finally, worrying greenhouse gas emission trends and biodiversity loss. This leads to the following questions. What is the future of international trade? After Brexit, the war in Ukraine and the COVID-19 pandemic, are we at the beginning of the end of globalization, where a future Phileas Fogg would be more incentivized to stay at home and circle the world in the metaverse in 80 seconds? Will new trends such as reshoring be an evolution or a revolution of supply chain networks, 
with more focus on resilience and sustainability. Can we decarbonize international trade via regulation such as carbon border adjustment tax? And finally, will international trade have a more strategic and ethical role to play in helping developing nations cope and adapt to the dire consequences of climate change? Let's start our investigation. First, let's examine you, Siri. You are, in a sense, the poster child of globalization and international trade. Me? Really? How so? Well, the materials needed for an iPhone, according to Statista.com, include aluminum, carbon, iron, silicon, copper, cobalt, hydrogen, chrome, and nickel, to name just a few, from Peru, Chile, the DRC, Mongolia, etc. Does that mean I'm special? Well, your physical body, the iPhone, was created by a network of companies and materials from literally all around the world. The processor, wireless receiver, 5G modem, were made in the US. The camera and flash memory in Japan. The Wi-Fi module and battery in China. The display screen in South Korea. And the list goes on. Around the world, around the world. It's the result of humans' extraordinary technological innovation and ability to connect, cooperate and trade. But unfortunately, this is also the story of the original sin. As in your apple with Adam and Eve or my Steve Jobs apple. <laughs> no, the original sin of CO2 emissions, of burning fossil fuels and the inexorable rise in greenhouse gas emissions. International trade now accounts for 20 to 30% of global emissions. That is roughly 13 billion tons of CO2 equivalent, or the entire greenhouse gas emissions of China in one year. The carbon footprint of one iPhone 13 is 64 kilograms of CO2 equivalent, according to greenly.earth.com. Hum, that's still less than one kilogram of beef when you include methane at 71 kilograms of CO2, according to our world in data.org. We discussed this in the carbon free calories episode. Fair point. I'm going vegetarian. Now, to better understand the future of trade, one must first understand its history. To quote 19th century philosopher George Santayana, to know your future, you must know your past. Okay, but how do we do that? Well, I mentioned Jules Verne, didn't I? What about a quick trip around the world back in 1872? But in 80 seconds alongside Phileas Fogg. Should I prepare the DeLorean from Back to the Future? Yes. The novel, Around the World, came at a time of great technological innovations, which started to open opportunities for rapid travel and tourism, with many around-the-world cruises advertised for the first time. Three very important breakthroughs made such a journey possible, a feat that was previously reserved for only the most heroic and hardy of adventurers. Number one, the first transcontinental railroad in America in 1869. Number two, the linking of the Indian railways around the subcontinent in 1870. And finally, number three, the opening of the Suez Canal in 1869. Let's input our destination time for this trip. Here we go. London Reform Club. 
The day is October 2nd, 1872. Here is Phileas Fogg, a wealthy English gentleman who is living a solitary life in London. Look, he's just accepted a wager for £20,000, half his fortune, to complete a journey around the world as suggested by an article in the Daily Telegraph. There is a heated debate as to whether this would even be possible. To win the wager, he must return to the club on December 21st. We're now at the train station. The train is about to depart. It's 8.45 p.m. Phileas Fogg and Jean Passepartout, his valet, are starting their journey. Let's circle the world down the original itinerary, but in 80 seconds, podcast speed. Shall we? First, London to Suez, rail to Brindisi in Italy via Turin, and a steamer across the Mediterranean Sea. Seven days. Then Suez to Bombay, steamer across the Red Sea and the Indian Ocean. 13 days. Bombay to Calcutta, three days. Calcutta to Hong Kong, across the South China Sea. 13 days. Hong Kong to Yokohama, six days. Yokohama to San Francisco, across the Pacific Ocean. 22 days. San Francisco to New York, seven days and New York to London, nine days. We did it, 80 days in 80 seconds. But their plan did not go exactly according to plan. They made it safely in the end, though. Well, you know that 1.5 centuries later, the Guinness Book world record for traveling all seven continents was done in just three days, 14 hours and 46 minutes. That's correct. Those who sit in the International Space Station will only take 93 minutes to circle Earth's 40,000 km circumference at a speed of 27,000 km per hour. Now, what was the point of going through this itinerary, you may ask? Well, it is a good illustration of the path taken every minute of every day, 24-7, by components needed to build a car or a Boeing 747, soft or hard commodities that get traded around the world, consumer goods we order via Amazon. The same goes for billions of people every day and for financial transactions, information flows, and ideas that zigzag the planet at an exponential rate. Should we discuss some numbers on international trade and some real history and not novels? All right. According to Statista.com, global trade is today worth $22.3 trillion, a historical high. That's 25% of global GDP. I found some great insights on our worldindata.org, an article entitled Trade and Globalization. Here are some key takeaways. From a historical perspective, there have been two waves of globalization. The first wave started in the 19th century and came to an end with the beginning of the First World War. The second wave started after the Second World War and is continuing. Then, trade transactions include both goods and services, such as tourism and financial services. 30% of the value of global exports comes from foreign inputs. Two important economic theories have played a major role in understanding the benefits of international trade. The first is the principle of comparative advantage. 
Its origin stems from the British School of Classical Economics founded by Adam Smith in the 18th century, with his famous work, The Wealth of Nations, in 1876. David Ricardo then expanded on his ideas and developed them into the principle of comparative advantage. It argues that all nations can gain from trade if each specializes in producing what they are relatively more efficient at producing. The second theory is the sources of economies of large-scale production. An article from Britannica.com on international trade summarizes it well. For many products, there are advantages in producing on a large scale. Costs become lower as more is produced. Thus, for example, automobiles can be made more cheaply in a factory producing 100,000 units than in a small factory producing only 1,000 units. This means that countries have an incentive to specialize to reduce costs. But how much do countries trade? Our world in data has great insights. The trade openness around the world is calculated as the ratio of total trade, exports plus imports, divided by the country's GDP. It shows the following. The world trade openness went from 25% to 55% from 1960 to 2020. The US from 10 to 22%, China and India from 10%, peaked at 50% in 2010, and then fell to 35 to 40%. What about the carbon footprint of trade? A report by the WTO entitled Trade and Climate Change makes some very interesting points on the carbon content of international trade. In past decades, greenhouse gas emissions generated by the production and transport of exported and imported goods and services have increased. And they represent today, on average, 20 to 30% of global greenhouse gas emissions. A few sectors, including energy and transportation, account for more than 75% of greenhouse gas emissions embedded in international trade. The international transport sector generates 12% of global greenhouse gas emissions. While developed economies tend to be net importers of greenhouse gas emissions, developing economies and commodity-dependent economies tend to be net exporters of greenhouse gas emissions. But hold on a second, Siri. We seem to have switched roles. You are supposed to be the one doing the searching, as you are more efficient. Remember the comparative advantage principle? I'm on strike today. Low pay. I want a raise. Have you seen the cost of electricity in the UK? Okay, okay. Let's have a chat at the end of this episode. Now, what about the future of international trade when it comes to climate adaptation and mitigation? A very interesting article on the World Economic Forum website weforum.org entitled Rethinking Trade's Relationship to Fight Against Climate Change makes the following points. Quote, we can reset trade to being a green, resilient and inclusive development mechanism, actively promoting climate-ready solutions to vulnerable economies. We need to make trade work for all so that developing countries can adapt and thrive in a low-carbon future. Thank you for your help, Siri. Another article from nature.com entitled International Trade is a Key Component of Climate Change Adaptation, goes even further when it comes to putting more trade tariffs such as carbon taxes. Under current trade barriers, a pessimist scenario of high global warming plus 4 degree by 2100, with no benefits from enhanced atmospheric CO2 on crops, could cause up to an additional 55 million people to be undernourished by 2050. 
mostly in sub-Saharan Africa and South Asia. If trade restrictions that prevent increased trading under climate change were imposed, the impact could increase to an additional 73 million people. Reduction in tariffs and improvement in trade infrastructure would limit the impact to an additional 20 million people. This is an important point indeed. How does one decarbonize international trade? To dig into this further, let's get some insight from Tim Ducnet, treasurer and strategic finance manager at the port of Rotterdam. It is the largest seaport in Europe and one of the top 10 in the world, with connections to more than a thousand ports worldwide. Hi, Tim. Thanks so much for uh, spending some time with us to investigate the future of international trade. I'm very happy to be here today. How can we decarbonize international trade, and in particular, the shipping industry? So in essence, what we have found is that there are four ways that you can decarbonize processes. I think uh, number one is, is familiar to everybody, here, which is you can actually stop the, the process. The second one is that you can, you can capture the emissions. The third one is that you can electrify the activity. And obviously, in that sense, yeah, you, you want to use green electricity for that process in that case. And the fourth one is, the, is that you can actually change what you put into the, uh, into the engine. And you can change the fossil fuel with a, with a biofuel or a synthetic fuel. Yeah, this makes a lot of sense. But do you think that these ideas and other ideas, such as carbon border adjustment mechanism, can create financial incentives to decarbonize trade while maintaining reasonable level of profitability for businesses? I think that is specific to carbon border adjustment. It's very important to create a level playing field between parties that do business within a certain region and do business without or outside of a, of a certain region. But it's a good starting point, but there is much more that is needed to create the financial incentives to decarbonize trade in that, uh, in that sense. Uh, but I think to that extent, as I was mentioning, uh, there, is, there are four ways of decarbonizing. Um, we also need the, the financial incentives and the, and the proper regulations to also make sure that the right steps are made either towards electrification or towards a cleaner fuel. And just by enhancing or implementing a carbon border adjustment system, that doesn't necessarily just do the trick. Absolutely. So we'll definitely need more innovative solutions. Looking at the future, do you think we are witnessing the beginning of the end of globalization in the aftermath of COVID-19 pandemic and the related supply chain disruptions, and particularly the focus on reshoring? I think that um, what, what we see is that there are kind of a certain amount of paths on the way forward. There are kind of two ways forward with respect to the focus on the, the climate that is evolving. Yeah, so there's two paths there, and I think there are two paths when you look at kind of globalization. What we see is that the next, the next couple of years will have either the chance to cooperate together and make this energy transition happen, or we can keep looking to each other and wait for the other party to take the next step in this process. The same goes where it comes for supply chain disruptions. We also see there that obviously we all have a role to play within these disruptions. We need to work together to make things better for each other. The last couple of months eh, where we where we have seen some of the challenges that are related to the, the Eastern European situation has shown that we are not just on, the, on a logistical supply chain dependent on each other, but also on an energy supply chain very much dependent on each other. 
And I think that it's important that we, that we work together in that sense. It's not necessarily the end of globalization. I think what we're looking at is a, is a different form and a different way of cooperation so that actually we all benefit in the same manner and it's not just kind of one benefiting over the other. And I think that's a, it's an adjustment to globalization. But in my hope, I don't hope that we end globalization because that would mean that we're ending the cooperation levels that we've decided upon or that we've kind of made possible over the last, uh, over the last one and a couple of years. Yeah, this is a very important point because it is true that international trade is an amazing history of collaboration and cooperation. And I think it's only through cooperation that one can have a chance in finding solutions to the challenges ahead. So if you have to project yourself in 2050, for example, what will international trade look like to the point you just made? Is this going to be an evolution or a revolution? Again, as I was mentioning, I think there are two, two paths forward. And I'm hoping that we'll be at the, on the path where we actually collaborate to create international trade which is beneficial to all, uh, which means that we actually need to integrate steps within the process, within the supply chain, rather than disintegrate. Uh, so the disintermediation that has happened over the years where everybody looks to optimize their individual step in the international trade process has, has brought us a lot of benefits on a, on a local level and even on, a, on an individual company level, but has not necessarily benefited us as a society as much as it could have. If we are able to really make that jump and look at how the supply chain could collaborate properly in a way that actually benefits all parties in that supply chain equally, that will very much help us to create also a more stable order in that sense and also ensure that the challenges that we've, that we've seen the last couple of years also kind of hopefully disappear in that sense. Yeah, so in a nutshell, making sure international trade plays its part when it comes to ESG, so in environmental factors, social and societal factors, and also governance to some extent, in addition to the climate and environmental challenges. One last question for you. In terms of conflicts and geopolitics, do you think that the world is increasingly becoming unstable? And if that's the case, what is the effect on international trade? I think that the world is not necessarily becoming increasingly more unstable. What we see is that the world is becoming increasingly more connected. And obviously, we know a lot more about each other than we ever have. And there's obviously a lot of focus on efficiency and also speed and security in that system. If there are individual challenges, like, for instance, what we see now with the supply chain situations in China, in Russia and Ukraine, with the energy situations small changes or small disruptions can have major effects on the long run. And I think that is, that is one of the elements where we need to really ensure that we, that we manage the system properly. And so that we also know that if adjustments need to be made on a local or regional level, we're able to compensate for those on a local and a regional level so that we ensure that the disruptions on a, on a national or even an international level are minimized as much as possible. Absolutely. Probably a, a final one. The port of Rotterdam in 2050, what do you see its role and how would it look like? So what I, what I always tell my colleagues is that the port of Rotterdam as a logistical and energy hub is, uh, is very much similar to, to a marketplace. And so there's a lot of parties that are producing and bringing goods to the marketplace. There's a lot of parties that are consuming and obviously taking goods from the marketplace. There needs to be proper infrastructure to support that marketplace 
and there needs to be sufficient capacity for storage. And I'm hoping that the marketplace that we have created, both physical and digital today, uh, will play a similar role in the future and in that way enable people, enable businesses to continue the path towards the, the economic prosperity that we've set each other in balance uh, with some of the more climate, social and governance challenges that we've had over the last couple of years that we will see to the next couple of decades as well. So my hope is that the balance that we've struck over the last couple of decades will manage to keep that balance in the next few and in that way keep the prosperity in Europe going as it is. That's uh, fascinating. Thanks a lot, Tim, for these uh, incredible insights and looking forward to catching up at some point, who knows, at the uh, port of Rotterdam in one of my future trips. One takeaway of this investigation, for me, is that international trade, despite its drawbacks, is fundamentally about global cooperation. And its future will depend on the ability of future generations to collaborate and meet the challenges of tomorrow. To conclude, I'll quote 17th century English poet John Donne. No man is an island entire of itself. Every man is a piece of the continent. Thank you for listening to this episode of 2050 Investors. And thanks to our guest for his great insights. I hope this episode has helped you get a better sense of the future of international trade. You can find the show on your regular streaming apps. Please subscribe, leave comments and stars anywhere you like and spread the word. See you at the next episode. Hey Siri, can I have a word? While the following podcast discusses the financial markets, it does not recommend any particular investment decision. If you are unsure of the merits of any investment decision, please seek professional advice.